This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's local books and comic show like the only books and comic show we do here i'm so excited to be here i just i'm a little flustered because our news is going to be totally different today uh we we have a, a very special guest with us somebody that's near and dear to my heart bruce gibson how's it going bruce oh thank you and you're near and dear to my heart because, you know, I just had you over for Labor Day weekend during Dragon Con, which was pretty fun. That's true. That's true. We actually got to meet in real life, which was just a, a, a huge, huge blessing and a blast for me and my wife. And the one, the only, Dan Gunther, it's, it's great to have you here, Dan. In fact, you're coming live from the Canadian studios for Literary Treks. That's very true. Being way up here in Canada, it does make it harder to meet you guys in real life, but I'm still really hoping to do that someday. So, you know, holding out hope. Yep. <laughs> we'll always have shore leave one day. It's going to happen. Oh, yeah. here, here. So, well, truly, we do have somebody very special here to join us in news, and that's because he has a massive trilogy coming out very soon. In fact, you may have already seen this book gracing the shelves of your local bookstore and or big box retailer. And that is the man himself, the author, John Jackson Miller. Hey, glad to be here. Welcome. Hey, John, how are you? I am fine. I have uh, been spending the last, oh, year and a half in the beta quadrant. And <laughs> I, uh, I I put a, put a lot of light years on the keyboard here. So uh, the trilogy, the third book just finally uh, went to bed uh, you know, the last uh, proofreading go around yesterday. And uh, it's so, uh, you know, I, I've written something like a, a third of a million words in the last uh, 10 months. And I'm, I'm delighted to finally actually be done with them and also be able to talk about them. Oh, man, that's incredible, John. Well, I guess, you know, we wanted to have you on because we wanted you to be able to preview the series for everyone. And our plan is to have you back in December once all of the books are out so we can talk through the whole series and you, you don't have to worry about spoilers. But we didn't want there to be that opportunity for you to not kind of amp us up even more than we already are because I, I know that I speak for Bruce and Dan that we're both, we're all very excited. Amped, amped. Um, yes, we're very amped yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. So, Tell us just kind of how uh, the the job for for this series came about. 
Well, pray and you know, I always I have, you have to spell it P R E Y as in birds of. Uh, for a long time, it was P R A Y as in pray that it will be on time. <laughs> but uh, you know, that was usually my editor, you know, and me saying that to each other. Uh, this is, I would say, my dream Star Trek project. Uh, it is the sort of thing that I have always wanted to do, really tying in and hitting on all of the things about Star Trek that interest me the most. And because of that, I didn't just want one book to do it. I wanted to actually have, you know, an epic length story to be able to do it. You know, you know, my love for Star Trek, uh, you know, certainly I, I saw the episodes uh, of the original series when they were on and uh, Wrath of Khan. And uh, of course, you know, I was watching the cartoons even. Uh, I was born mm. the night that uh, a piece of the action came out. So uh, that was uh, that was the original series episode. Uh, I didn't get to see that episode when it aired. I was busy. But I was thinking back on the on what the things were. This is this is in the time after I did the takedown novel for Next Generation what the things were that really hooked me into Star Trek and that I liked the most. And of course, you know, I like a lot of the greatest hits that everybody else does, but I, I, I look back and I think, you know, I like Star Trek three a lot more than probably the average person does. The average Trekker does. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, and one of the reasons was it hit us with my favorite starship of just about any, you know, franchise, the bird of prey. Uh, mm, and, yeah. and we also got, some depth and you know a, a sense of who the klingons were uh and so you take that and then you build on to that uh you know next generation when it was airing i watched every episode when it came out uh it didn't catch fire for me though until sins of the father uh until we have the episode where we go to uh, the klingon homeworld and uh you know we we find out about what the politics are uh, you know, within the empire, and uh, we learn about discommendation, uh, and uh, you know, we 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 have a whole lot of springboards right there that, of course, take us in through the the Klingon civil war and various other things. And of course, that if I wasn't already hooked, I that that hooked me even further. Um, and you know, I I go from college on to grad school where I'm studying uh, Soviet studies. Uh, I got the last Soviet studies degree or master's degree I think they offered in this country. I would have gotten a doctorate, but the Soviet Union collapsed on my dissertation. <laughs> um, but this tells you when that was, uh, because, uh, you know, I, I was I was in the middle of working on that degree when Star Trek VI came out. And of course, Star Trek VI is nothing but, uh, you know, a, a pastiche of the end of the Cold War. Uh, and yeah. American-Soviet relations as seen through the prism of, of the Klingons and the Federation. Uh, you know, Praxis is, can Praxis be any more obviously Chernobyl? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 what it, it's what it is. Um, and so I was thinking back on all of these things and realizing, you know, these were the sorts of, you know, pillars that I would like to build a house on, that I would like to build a structure on uh, and uh, a story. And so what we have in Prey, and it, it was something that to do it justice, it could not be done in one book. Um, I realized that when we were at in the Next Generation novel timeline, uh, 2386 
was exactly 100 years after the trial of James T. Kirk. Uh, because oh, wow yeah because uh it was 2285 it was november i believe uh that star trek 3 happens uh and then they never really you know put a specific date on it but early 2286 uh is is uh, you know the trial and uh star trek 4 well it struck me that i could do a story that tied together uh both time periods uh, and really dealt with the fact that if you took uh, Commander Krug and put him in today's, uh, and when I say today, I just mean that because I've been working in the Next Generation timeline in this series for so long, it, it feels like the modern era. Uh, but if you were to transport Krug to Kirk and Picard's era, uh, Kirk, but uh, I mean, Riker and Picard's era, what would he think of it? Uh, he probably wouldn't be happy about it at all. He would probably feel the same way that Stalin would feel, uh, you know, showing up uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, it would it would be a different kind of a thing. And so what I constructed was using that centennial uh, moment, uh, and there is sort of a celebration that's tied to it, and, and I'll get into what that is in a, in a few minutes. I, I wanted to do a political thriller that was kind of in the tradition of you know, those 1960s uh, paranoia films like uh, Seven Days in May, which I think is actually, you know, even even on TV tonight or, or tomorrow night. Uh, it is, uh, as we're recording, where it's always things could be flying apart. Uh, these these Cold War uh, paranoia movies, uh, Failsafe is another one like that. Uh, and certainly all the stuff that I grew up with all the way up through War Games, uh, <laughs> where, yeah. you, where you have, where you have, uh, this this feeling that it just takes one or two incidents for even the most stable relationship to unravel. And that's what I wanted to do with the Klingon alliance with the Federation. This is the point of this story uh, is not just to you know come in and wreck the place and, and put it all back the way it was after it's over. I wanted to present a, a situation where the Klingons and the Federation have specifically different reactions to something, uh, and it really is incumbent upon the Federation, specifically Riker, who has this new role of admiral. He's sort of the guy who is the fix-it man for the uh, Federation diplomatically these days. I wanted him to face this challenge of this is something which has happened, uh, it is. It, it does have a Star Trek VI echo to it, where you know this is something we may have been uh, a, a contributing factor to having this incident happen, this series of incidents happen, and we've got to fix it, and we've got to make sure that it gets fixed. But at the same time, uh, you know, we really spend a lot of pages with the Klingons themselves. What I posit in this series is that Krug, uh, now we knew that Krug had a girlfriend. <laughs> That's right, yeah. But we didn't know anything about him or his family. Uh, there were allusions to the house of Krug existing in some of the comics uh, and uh, various other places. Otherwise, we didn't know anything about him or his family or anything else that I was able to find, except that he seems to have uh, one of the prototype birds of prey. 
you know, the Burrell uh, is is the official name of the bounty. And I decided that, well, let's actually let's actually say that the House of Krug is an industrial powerhouse within the Klingon Empire, that they are in the forefront of bird of prey construction and design. And let's say that there are some landmines left over from Kirk's day that continue onward into the next generation era. Uh, one of those landmines is a young man in the time of uh, of Star Trek Three, Star Trek Four, a, a fellow by the name of Korg. Korg, at least, believes himself or claims to be uh, the uh, the heir to Krug. Uh, we'll get into why that is and how that is in the book. But uh, this is somebody who wants to see Krug's legacy protected. And certainly Krug would never have gone for what happens uh, on Kittimer. And Krug never, ever would have been for anything that would have happened uh, you know, years down the line uh, with the Klingons and the, and the Federation. And I'm able to actually use a little bit of the paranoia that was ginned up in Takedown, actually. I was able to bring in uh, uh, one of the Klingon characters, Kirsch, that I had created in uh, in Takedown to sort of be present in the middle of all this. Uh, I have made her one of the members of the House of Krug. And uh, th this is, uh, you know, what's great about this having been a trilogy is, first of all, I knew that this was going to be a series of incidents and reactions and incidents and reactions. I didn't want it to be something that, uh, you know, would be re resolved right away. This book series takes place in real time. Uh, it is uh, in the sense that these novels are coming out September, October, November. They correspond to February, March, April of 2386. Each novel is in a full month. Uh, and so that gave me enough time to really uh, show how the things that happen in the books impact Federation society, impact Klingon society, impact some of the other players that are in the galaxy. And so it's it's not something that is, you know, one of those things where everything is immediately resolved uh, you know, right away. We're able to hit all these things. The other thing was because... Uh, you know, I had this period of of the timeline uh, you know, parceled out, uh, and I had three books to do it in. I was able to put all hands on deck. So uh, mm. you asked about crews uh, that might be in this. Well, we yeah, have, definitely. Clearly, we have Vale and and Titan, uh, which are serving uh, which are serving at uh, you know as the flagship of of Riker, and so you know we have them but we also have uh you know for a specific reason Picard and Worf are brought into this so Enterprise comes in and I won't say exactly when in this series it's not it's not right at the beginning but we get Aventine as well and uh, yes we, Excellent. <laughs> we get Dax and we also get some other people as well we get uh, a, a, a lot of familiar Klingon names will return you know, we will see Clag. We see a number of other uh, uh, people, and you know, if we're if we're talking about the major characters in the series, well, there's there's really you know three or four villains, <laughs> or at least antagonists that are working. Some of them at cross purposes to one another. 
but in addition to Riker, who is trying to work the diplomatic angle on this, in addition to uh, Picard and LaForge, uh, who are trying to work the, uh, the mystery that's involved here, uh, we also have Tuvok, who is uh, very much involved with trying to resolve yeah, there's a there's a there's several mysteries uh, in this uh, about what is specifically going on. Uh, that's another nice thing about three books. We have layers here. We have doors that we can open uh, at the end of one book, and then we realize, oh yeah, okay, that's what's really going on. And then we get a different set of doors opening at the end of the second book. There's a lot going on, John. I think you had probably a little too much fun with this. <laughs> I I had a lot, and yeah, I tell you, the most fun I I had probably was with another character that you know, we haven't really publicized that he's in this. Uh, we have a significant role for a guy that we have not seen in a while. Another character from one of my favorite Next Generation episodes, we've got Kalos. And Oh, nice. Excellent. Very cool. This is the first use of Kalos that I've been able to find in the, uh, in the literature uh, since a few years ago when he was sort of retired. He was sent off to a, a planet to... Uh, paint pretty pictures in the, in a forest uh, <laughs> because you know there was technically no need for him anymore because uh, you know the the Klingons had had found their honor again they had found an honorable leader the Civil War was over all of this uh, it, well of course of course that was past when he showed up but he had previously had you know Michael Jan Friedman had written a novel Kalis which was you know half and half for the clone and half for Kalis the Unforgettable. Uh, Kalos is pretty important to this story, and if you're looking for a Worf Kalos buddy cop movie, uh, this is this this at least starts out that way. They're, That's awesome. So you know, I I had a lot of fun with it. I had you know resource materials just stacked everywhere. You know, I had my Klingon bird of prey owners or operators manual out. So basically, every location on this bird of prey, you can find it on the diagram you can find it you know the everything is on the proper uh, on the proper deck and yeah then just for good measure i went out and uh, i got uh, one of the people with the klingon language institute folks i i believe he, he teaches klingon on one of the online services nice uh, <laughs> a, a gentleman by the name of uh, felix malmenbeck from sweden and i brought him into the circle in terms of the new terms that we created and had him look over certain sections because, you know, I, we del this is a deep dive into a certain part of Klingon culture that we don't usually see. To say what the part is kind of gives away some of the game, but this in, this gave me the chance to really, uh, you know, establish some new things and come up with some new words and, and add them to what we know. And, I, you know, I just had so much fun with this thing. And it, again, uh, it's, you know, 300,000 words and change and pe people are going to get it one book <laughs> after another. So, uh, you know, they pretty much you'll get done with book one, book two will be on the shelf. Okay. I got to ask you a, a question, John, because uh, so we talked a little bit about some of the crews involved and, and whatnot. So the book cover for book one, Hell's Heart, has a very intriguing cover. Because it has my two favorite enterprises on it. 
Wow. Yeah. One belongs to Kirk and yes. the other one belongs to Picard. Can you give us any indication about how those two? This is sort of our A and E network book because we've got yes, <laughs> we've got A and and A and E on there, and uh, of course, Birds of Prey. Uh, uh, they th this is no time travel story. I've, I I wanted to make that clear from the front. That's a pastiche. Uh, I can tell you that uh, Kirk's Enterprise takes up a significant tr chunk of this novel uh, of the first of the first volume, and it is not the only extended flashback. And when I say extended flashback, I mean we're talking about uh, you know it's about a quarter of the book in terms of uh, between a quarter and a third of the book in terms of of Kirk, you know Spock and McCoy and everybody else. Uh, and it is because you know we as I said we planted the seeds for what happens later in the original series era and i wanted to show how they had developed and uh you know reached the next generation and one of the things that we're going to find out is it's not uh you know this is this is not just sort of a fan service let's bring in you know a, a flashback here with these characters just to have them there are some major elements that are planted there and that are revealed there uh, and one one of the nice things about Star Trek is that there are it's possible for characters to live from one time frame to the next. So there That's are true, yeah. there are some characters, and I won't say who, who are present in both my 23rd century and my 24th century uh, uh, sections. And you know, some of them are characters that I created. Some of them are characters from the series and from the existing lit that helps tie the whole thing together and make it feel like it's of a piece. And uh, again, one of the things that was nice about this series is by writing the books sequentially, but then, uh, uh, you know, one after the next, after the next, but then release it, waiting to release them until the very end that has allowed me to go back and uh, you know, do a lot of, work on book one while book three was on my uh, desk. I've, I've, I've actually had periods here this summer where all three books were on my desk at the same time uh, for proofreading or whatever. So, you know, if there are any mistakes in this book, uh, continuity wise, either between us and other series or us and uh, the TV shows or the books themselves, it's not for lack of working on it <laughs> because, uh, you know, I was able to, you know, have all three books there and go, okay, this character's an only child in book three. I got to make sure I don't mention the brothers or sisters in book one. Uh, and, and I was able to go back and deal with that. So, you know, it's, it's rare that you're actually able to approach something as one, you know, just really, it's, it's a three part, uh, you know, marathon. I mean, it sounds fantastic. And so I guess uh, to kind of, because we obviously we, we want people to really enjoy this. We don't want to give too much away but what are some of the things that you're most excited to have fans get to? And uh, are there any exclusive, you know, tidbits you may want to let loose to everybody? Well, there is, you know, there, there, there's a major subplot or two that I just wish I could get into. Um, you know, folks that read Takedown found out that there was a specific episode of the TV series uh, that was central to everything that happened in that novel. Folks who read the Absent Enemies uh, 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 short story I did for Titan, it was the same thing. This is like that as well. There, uh, there's a there's a 
uh, entire subplot in the second book uh, that you know, comes from uh, you know something I haven't even mentioned yet and am not going to because by the time we get to by the time people read book one, they'll know what it is. It allows me to create yet another culture or subculture that's out there and elaborate on it and and do that in a way that uh, I wasn't you know going to be able to do in a single book. You know, some of the surprises, um, you might see the Excelsior somewhere. Oh, uh, <laughs> you might see some. Yeah, uh, you, you there. There are some. There's some fun little bits, uh, and uh, that's that's something that uh, again, uh, you know, we did have the freedom to do with this. You know, the idea was it was going to come out here in the twenty, uh, you know, the fiftieth anniversary. And it just sort of fit perfectly that it was also something that spanned a hundred years, and so I I wanted to show as many, you know, related moments that that had some importance as I could. That's fantastic. Well, so I want to make sure everybody knows when these books are coming out. And like we said, you know, uh, with mass market books, you can find them early, so they may already be out. But if you're like me and you get the digital copies, it'll come out on these dates. That's correct. Uh, so the first book, Hell's Heart, comes out September 27th. Uh, we've got the second book, which is The Jackal's Trick, and that comes out October 25th. And then the last book in the series, to wrap it up, is The Hall of Heroes, and that comes out on November 29th. So going to want to go and check, especially for Hell's Heart right now, because it could already be in your bookstore at this very moment, waiting for you to pick it up. And uh, we can't wait to, to be able to to have you back there in December to be able to talk through the whole thing because <laughs> I can tell you're chomping at the bit to oh, tell yeah. us all the fun stuff, <laughs> but you you don't want to ruin it for everybody, which makes you a, a great author. Well, one of the fun things I am going to be able to do, uh, I I do drop a few uh, clues and visual aids and things on my Twitter, which is JJM Far Away. Um, there are actually a couple of artifacts, uh, physical artifacts from the 19th and the 20th centuries that play roles in this book uh, and uh, or in this in this in this trilogy. And uh, again, they're kind of fun Easter egg things, but uh, I'm thinking of actually uh, putting photos of those out as well here uh, because it's uh, there's a, there's there's a connection between all of this and the 1933 World's Fair. Oh, uh, or actually, or actually, the 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 actually, it's the the Columbian Exposition in Chicago is what they called it. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that's that's one of the fun little bits. So I I you know what you know what I one of the things I love about Star Trek not just having the chance to write uh, transporters because transporters are I think I said the last time I was on the show transporters are narrative gold. I mean, yes, <laughs> you're just right there. I mean, you're you you don't have to worry about shuttles or anything else. I've I've Certainly in Star Wars, I've often had to worry about, can this ship even land? Uh, you know, <laughs> how do people get out? Uh, but one of the things I love about Star Trek is I can do callbacks to history if I want to. You know, I can mention Machiavelli. I can mention the World's Fair. Uh, you know, I can I can you know, do some of these things. And there's a chance that the characters, you know, would have some knowledge of these things. And it's not out of left field. You know, it, it one one of the hallmarks of the Trek novels, you know, going back way back into the Trek novels, is the uh, you know, the the uh, quotations that almost all almost they're all quotations from literature or history or something, 
Uh, you know, I I had one of those for every section of all three books, and probably worked harder on selecting those than just about uh, uh, anything else, except for the the story itself. And again, that is so much fun to be able to draw on all of these other things, and uh, and you know, have it you know be in universe. Well, John, I mean, we can sure hear the giddiness in your voice. And I got to tell you, it's getting me really excited for these books for sure. And uh, I really want people to pre-order all three because, uh, I mean, that's that's going to be the thing that, you know, the, the concern always with trilogies when that you have three in a row is, you know, that people are going to you know drop off from one to two to three. I try to write every book so that if you pick up just plain two or just plain three, you'll still sort of know what's going on. But this thing is designed to be a single unit. And, you know, I'm I'm it's one of those things where I'm really hoping one day it does get the destiny treatment or something like that, where it it gets into that single volume and it'll be in that situation, you know, digitally by you know the end of November. So, I, you know, people will be able to uh, I'm sure they'll uh, I'm not saying that they're going to do a single release, but I, you know what they do. They bundle these things, uh, at least at Amazon or wherever you press the button and you get all three. Well, I, what's what's great is, uh, so what you're saying, and I, I think I'm hearing you right, you've just created the Klingon Lord of the Rings for Star Trek, which I'm super <laughs> excited about. <laughs> I think, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a quest. There are several quests. <laughs> there, are several, there are several quests, yeah. Um, uh, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we got it. Yeah, you can't say. <laughs> I'm in real trouble here. <laughs> yeah, this is Lord of the Rings, and Star Trek Three is The Hobbit. That's how it there all works. Go. Right? It is, there it you is. go. There you go. Let me put. If we have to give it a tagline, we could go this way. Imagine Star Trek Six with the Next Generation, and with the situation there, and that is uh, that is that is that is very you know much kind of what I was going for. Uh, you know that something that would shake up the entire political firmament, except instead of you know repairing something, we may be rupturing. So it it is it is uh, if we're if we're talking about you know, favorite films to do the callbacks on, uh, and uh, and yeah, I mean the birds of prey. Yeah, make I I I I just enjoy the heck out of those ships. I mean it's uh, it's. Uh, I, I now know where the bathrooms are on the birds of prey. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got you to, you, you gave out where people can follow you on Twitter, where you've been dropping some, some great hints. Uh, where, uh, tell everybody about your website so they can follow you there. Uh, because I know you do some great things. Uh, you, you give, um, some great behind the scenes on a lot of your books that you write. And so it's definitely worth everybody knowing where they can find you. Yes, that's uh, farawaypress.com. I, I have a behind-the-scenes essay on every uh, book and short story and magazine and everything else that I've ever done, uh, with the exception of Takedown, and I've been holding that one off until you know, probably just the week before Prey comes out. Um, but uh, you know, the, uh, you know, that, that's going to be a fun one to do because uh, you know, there's just so much uh, fun trivia and everything else in there. And you know, I just saw that the the third printing of that book just came out, and I'm delighted about that. And I'm even more delighted by the fact that they went into the third printing and they made sure that uh, that Riker had a trumpet. I'm sorry, a trombone rather than a trumpet. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I had that glitch in the very beginning because 
uh, unlike unlike Prey, where I had a, a, a good long while to do the proofreading, uh, on that novel, I kept getting the proofreading passes while I was in hotels for conventions. And so it was, mm-hmm. oh, so it was one of those things where, what's the Wi-Fi like here? I don't know. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's so, you're, so you're doing the research. I also got a C in music class, so that that that's my other <laughs> that's my other excuse there. I'm an author, not a musician, uh, or a doctor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this is fun. You're the first time we've ever done this, but we're going to have you continue on with us a little bit as we talk about uh, our last news item that we have uh, this week, which is. Uh, when there's a couple of things that go with this, so we're going to talk about the first part, and then we'll talk about the second part on top of what we you know, this adds to the storyline. But one of the things that we learned from Star Trek Mission New York was that Kirsten Beyer, who is one of the Star Trek authors, working on Discovery, we knew, but she is going to be the liaison for the new Star Trek Discovery novels as well as a comic series, which I I. I love that they're weaving all this together and I'm hoping that this just works really well. I'm, I'm very excited. Love Kirsten, everything she does. So the fact that she's involved with this, it just, it, I'm, my mind was kind of blown when I saw this news. Yeah, this is really incredible news. Uh, Kirsten Beyer, of course, incredibly talented as a writer and yeah, I, I have full confidence that she's going to really be able to bring these two aspects of Discovery together. And it's really cool that the show is getting tied so closely to the uh, the secondary media, like the books and the comics as well. Like, I don't think we've seen this kind of close uh, working together between those two parts of Star Trek before. Yeah, so we have uh, David Mack working on the novel, and we have Mike Johnson working on the comic series, and these all coincide with the tv show all at the same time in may of 2017 <laughs> since that's right Bruce, you learned something new today didn't you i learned this i didn't know because i was fixing a garage door when the news came out so you guys told me <laughs> about it before the show so i'm kind of getting over it I, I i'm okay with the delay because i think these novels that john was talking about are going to satisfy me for a while that large hole in the wall behind you you know we'll just we'll just ignore that you know that was that was a uh, you know that was an isolated incident you're over that now i can i can patch it up i can patch it up but i will <laughs> say that if these novels are being directed or being oversaw by kirsten Beyer, it's also, the question is going to come out from a lot of people. Does this mean that these are canon since they're associated closely with the show? Or are they semi-canon? So there's debate that's going to happen there when those come out. Well, this is something I may have something specific to you know, refer to because I have the same experience coming from Star Wars. Uh, yeah, first of all, we're all really envious of, of Kristen and, and uh, you know, it's, it's so great uh, that, that she's involved with this thing. Uh, you know, for so many years, uh, and of course, Trek fans certainly know this, but, uh, you know, the uh, tie-in novels and tie-in comics, uh, were a licensing afterthought. I mean, they never had any bearing on the, uh, the property. No one would have ever imagined that anything that would happen, uh, in the, in the comics or in the novels would be reflected in a cartoon or a TV show or something like that one day, much less a movie. Uh, and, you know, usually there was no, uh, not much, you know, byplay coming from the movies and the, and the, and the, and the 
TV shows themselves either because, you know, the, t the production schedules that they worked on, you know, things are always in motion. Uh, you know, you might have uh, an adaptation come out of something, uh, but they weren't really able to you know, set you up with anything several months in advance or a year in advance or anything like that. What they did with, uh, with the Lucasfilm story group, uh, and this began with my novel, A New Dawn, uh, which was designed to be a lead-in to the Rebels TV series. Uh, the story group is actually a group of people where you've got, there's somebody there representing the films, somebody representing the TV shows, somebody there representing, uh, who is at least familiar with the literature and the novels and the comics and the games and everything else. And the whole idea is to make the content go two ways. So, for example, I was given the story Bible of the entire first season of Rebels, and the executive producers told me, okay, here's all these things that you can drop. Here's all these, you know, think who, who the main character's Jedi uh, master really was, stuff that was not going to be revealed for a while yet. And so they were able to push stuff towards me, but at the same time, because they're aware of what I'm doing, uh, and it is considered canon, the characters that have been in our novels have now, uh, you know, one of my characters has shown up in the Marvel comics, uh, has shown up in many of the other novels. And now, uh, in the case of Thrawn, uh, who is, uh, is coming back in a novel by Timothy Zahn, Thrawn is one of the major heavies for the third season of the, uh, the TV show, uh, Rebels. So, you know, and who, who knows what else you will do. It is clear to me that other franchises, and I don't know anything specific about Star Trek, but it is clear that you know, that sort of changes the game to a degree, uh, gives some inspiration to some other people maybe to uh, you know, knit these things together a little bit better than they might have been in the past. Because that's what fans want. They want it to all connect. Exactly. And we want it to work, too. I mean, you know, there's it's never good when you write a great novel and it gets overwritten uh, or it gets, you know, something happens continuity wise that blows it up. Uh, the story still exists. And, you know, I've had to talk a lot of Star Wars fans off ledges uh, because, you know, because we sort of did do this, uh, you know, not exactly a reboot, but we we just, we just declared that canon starts here with this particular novel. Uh, but, uh, you know, with, with Star Trek, uh, you know, all of the authors already, you know, look at all the other, you know, current novels as being canon for our purposes. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of uh, other, uh, you know, Star Trek uh, stories that, uh, that, that Prey ties into other novels that are out there, uh, including some that you know, are in that pre-Destiny era that, you know, exactly how should you consider those? I consider those to be cool novels, uh, and I, I bring them in. You know, Kalis, uh, there are callbacks to the Kalis novel, and that's that's late 90s. You know, we, we are already uh, obeying everything that's on Memory Alpha and Memory Beta. Uh, it's not that hard, necessarily, to construct something similar going back the other direction. Uh, it's just, it does require you to have somebody in the room uh, that you know, is aware of what's in these other, you know, literary uh, or, you know, the comics or the novels or something else. Uh, the, it, it is possible to do, to do this sort of thing. It's just, you know, some of the things that make it complicated are that 
you know, the time frames on which you produce a TV show and the time frames on which you produce a novel or a comic book are very much different. And um, yeah, that's true. You know, you can have you can have something in a, you can have something in an ebook that reflects today's episode that you just saw if you wanted to. Uh, and and you know, it's it's out there that fast. Uh, if if there's somebody available to edit it and you know it, it's able to be run by the licensor and everything that can be done very quickly but what was what has always been the problem in the past is that um and here i'm sp talking specifically in terms of star wars uh is you know when the clone wars cartoon came out uh you know they were generating stories for that weekly and they were coming out so fast that you know it was actually hitting a lot of the related novels that were coming out uh and you know actually kind of you know, there's there, there was a situation where one author just you know dropped out of a book project uh, because there was so much stuff coming out, it was not really negotiable. wasn't wasn't able to do that. But if you've got somebody that's actually in the story room, then when you know, then before the novels are conceived, even they know what's safe to go near. Mm, uh, yeah, and, and so that is. You know, we're in a different ball game now. I mean, this is you talked about synergy. I mean, this is this is really uh, you know this is this is this is media synergy uh, on a whole new level uh, than we've ever been able to do before. I think, and part of it is coming from the fact that the people that are making TV and movies are fully aware of fandom now and fully aware that we keep the property going in between the movies, in between. Uh, in between the episodes of the TV show or the seasons of the TV show, you know, we can be there pe you know, giving people that fix. We have been there giving people that fix. And so, yeah, I mean, you go back to the, uh, you know, the seventies, you know, they were, oh gosh, you know, they were, they were, or sixties or whatever. You know, there were, there were novels on based on the Beverly Hillbillies for God's sake. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're... Oh, we need another one of those, John. Are you going to write one for us? <laughs> I actually have a Beverly Hillbillies plot that I wrote in 1998 for TV comics uh, where, where, and listen to this, Ted Clampett runs for president because, of course, we, need a, we needed a multi-billionaire mogul as president, I thought, in 1998, <laughs> and I thought Jed Clampett was the man. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be huge. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> Except, except it would be woo-wee. I mean, it would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is so great, though, because, you know, we have Kirsten and she's involved with the writing staff of the show, like you said, and, and she knows what's going on. And so it's a wonderful way of Star Trek being in, able to dive into what Star Wars has been doing with the comics and the books. And, you know, I would think with a 13-hour season uh, 13 episodes an hour each uh you know you have it probably pretty tightly wound up you know what's going to happen so you know where those comics and that book can tie in and, and benefit so i think this is to me this is great news and um you know again with only 13 episodes a, a season and maybe a year uh you know you have a lot of time to fill in so what a great opportunity to, to fill in with some books and some comics to enjoy 
for the fans as they wait for the next season. I think this is awesome. So, and boy, I, I tell you, I can't wait to cover that first novel and those first comics that come out. I mean, this is possibly more exciting than the TV show. Maybe not, but but it's up there. Like, I'm, no, I'm excited to check these out. I'm absolutely. It's going to be you. big. It's going to be huge. It's going to be <laughs> wonderful. Gonna be they're going to. They're only going to use the best words. It's going to be fantastic. Um. Anyway, enough with the the political. John, thank you uh, so much for for joining us, giving us just a fantastic preview of Prey, and kind of give us a little bit of behind the scenes of you know what it's like to to work uh, as a novelist writing in you know a, a basically canon for a series. So thank you so much. My pleasure, and uh, yeah, as to whether the novels will ever be canon or you know considered like that, you know, it's it, time will tell. And uh, you know, the one thing that is nice about Star Trek is that pretty much everything counts, and uh, you know, the, the, that that's that's one you know, that's something that Star Trek had the opportunity to do that Star Wars didn't really have as an option on the table, which is alternate realities. Uh, you know, we we have the mirror universe. Star Trek, that's actually built in the whole concept, uh, you know, that you can do something like that. Uh, and so you can have parallel timelines going on. Uh, so I, I think it is, it, it's great that, you know, I introduced my daughter to uh, Star Trek this summer because she, uh, she saw Beyond. Uh, and, oh, we, wow. and we immediately went home and, you know, I, I showed her, I think, Star Trek six or, or one of the original uh, you know, six movies. And, then I showed her the trouble with Tribbles, and then I we, we we sort of went on from there. And she digs the fact that it all counts, uh, and that it all it basically everything that was ever committed to film uh, is still you know technically part of of the you know at least the TV film canon. Uh, and there was nothing ever out there like a, a a Star Trek holiday special that is on an island that doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, and we will definitely look forward to having you back in December to talk about the entire Prey trilogy. Thank I appreciate it. Guys, it was so much fun getting to talk to John, and uh, before that we, I mean, we've had so much packed into this episode, so before we do that, I just want to remind everybody, of course, that Literary Treks is a part of the Trek FM network here, and you can find all of our shows at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. We're a feature provider there. Of course, we're all over the place, like Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, all of that kind of stuff you can find us. But best place really is iTunes. Uh, and while you're there, hit us up with a star rating and review. really helps. Of course, you can leave us a voicemail. You go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. You can send us an email. Go to trek.fm slash contact and choose a show, choose literary treks, and that'll come to all of us. Of course, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And we also have the Babel Comforts, which is the listeners-only discussion group, and, and that's a place you want to plug into because you get to talk with all the fans of Trek FM about all of our different shows. Type Babel into the search field on Facebook or click discussion on the website at trek.fm. And then last but not least, a really cool thing we have for Literary Treks is on Goodreads. And of course, we're a books and comics show, so you can go to Goodreads. You can become part of our Goodreads group, Literary Treks. We've got all the books and the comics that we've done on the show on our bookshelves. You can see what we've covered, as well as have great discussions with the rest of the fans of the show, uh, talking about the different books you're reading and all of that. So, guys, without further ado, I what do you think we don't jump into the feature, maybe? Talk a little uh, to brave the storm? Let's do it. 
If we have to, I guess. Okay, guys. So we're back and we're going to talk about To Brave the Storm. And as we had mentioned uh, when we covered the first Romulan War book, this was supposed to be a trilogy. And Michael Martin got that cut down on him. So there were only two books. And it's really interesting. Uh, this book, therefore, has to cover five years, whereas the first book covered only one year. And so I, I want to ask you just right up front, let's just get to the meat of the conversation. Does this book give you enough to cover that time? I mean, and this is the Romulan War. I mean, I think what it's like the holy grail things that, that fans, I guess, maybe even still want to know about. Well, what do you think? Yeah, this is this is one of the things that this book really suffers from is having to cram so much in between the front and back cover. It jumps around like crazy. And and I feel like and and you kind of hit the nail on the head there. This is the Romulan War. This is something that is referenced many 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 times throughout Star Trek through the original series. The Battle of Sharon is mentioned in The Next Generation. Like this is big. And you know, as much as I hate to say it, I feel like it doesn't get the service that it requires in this book simply because so much is packed in here and it's rushed. Uh, for me, even something like the final forming of the Federation could be a novel on its own. And even that's just kind of tacked onto the end of this book because, you know, Michael Martin has to cover so much here. And by the end of the novel, I'm really feeling like my head's been whipped around by how fast this plot has gone by. Um, I don't know, Bruce, what do, you, what do you think about that? The Romulan War books, there's two, at least by title. But really, there's more than that, because the Romulan War is getting set up in the Kobayashi Maru book. And also in The Good That Men Do, a lot of this is set up. So when you look at those books and how things are set up and how the story is progressing, progressing, you're expecting that once you hit this book, it's going to be similar to that. And this book would work a lot better to me if this period of time was just one year. If this story took place in the first year of the Romulan War, and then at the end of this book, we go into what happens next with the war, like phase two of the war. I'm not going to say that the book doesn't work, but you got to go into this book knowing that this is the span from almost the beginning to the very end of the war. And it it's it's playing out what happened during that time. And it's more narrative about it and not as much inside stories and, and other things going on throughout the war. It's like this is what happened at the beginning and all the way through until the end. So if you look at it that way, it shows you that the Enterprise and the and Starfleet isn't doing much in five years. They're patrolling. There isn't a whole lot going on during that time because war is intimate and they're they're figuring things out and waiting. So there isn't a lot of story to tell. It's interesting the way that he does craft the story uh, that there really aren't a ton of engagements. Uh, both factions... Uh, Earth and Romulus are dealing with other things while this is happening. So Earth has had war declared on it by Romulus, and yet Romulus is is having to deal with so many things 
you know, behind its borders that it's struggling to actually fight a war with Earth, and Earth is struggling to fight a war with Romulus because their ships can just be telecaptured, so they have to be so careful. So there's this real almost Cold War feel to what's happening. I mean, it's a little bit more active than a... a I mean, it, let's we could call it the lukewarm war, I think, because uh, that's really how it feels. I mean, other than the Romulans destroying a few more planets by sending down, you know, ginormous fiery missiles that, you know, destroy a planet like they did Corridan, Guandan Core, uh, a few others that they, I think they do end up doing it to like three or four planets by the end. Uh, you know, like you said, Bruce, really what this book is, is the Enterprise and Captain Archer regaining their good name through some good actions, and he takes inspiration, Archer does, from Hornblower and the Hotspur, in which Hornblower is the captain of a ship in the Napoleonic Wars and doesn't have the resources to be fighting the war, so what he does is start being altruistic towards everyone, helping everyone, uh, and that builds up a basically an intelligence force because, well, when you're nice to people, they tend to want to be nice back. And so, uh, you know, Archer's golden ruling it out there and people continue to reciprocate and they're able to get information and help that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Uh, and he's able to do this not just with like random people he meets, but the Vulcans, uh, you know, uh, sex of the Vulcans, the Andorians, and the Klingons end up helping him because of what he does. And so I thought that was the most interesting and well-done part of the book, and it takes a lot of time throughout the story. Well, that's what I was going to say, because right. what you just said of them helping out, that doesn't happen until you really get to the end of the book. And so the rest of the book is just... Archer and his crew hoping that by being nice and helping others that some of these planets and these races will come through and we're still waiting and nope, we'll try again, we'll try again. And really when it gives up all hope, oh, at the end, now they all show up. So I'm, I'm with you. I, I like that, but it just, it did take the span of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely something that I think in some ways we kind of really feel the uh, drawn out nature of that through reading it, like the way it's set up, it kind of does feel like this futile thing that, that Archer and his crew are going through that ultimately does pay off in the end. Um, one thing about the kind of strange pacing of this book, and I I'm wondering if it's because the seams are kind of showing because, you know, it had to be, uh, you know, smushed together into one book kind of thing did you guys notice a lot of times there would be kind of uh something being set up and then the next chapter we'd get like the aftermath of it without actually seeing the event i noticed a, f a few times there were like it was like a chuck windig book that i'm thinking of ah, oh let's not go there <laughs> anyway yeah no exactly because i think one of them is uh is gonna go back to vulcan and uh, basically find herself, and then we get to 
to pull, she's already found herself, or did she actually do that? Or there were several things in there where I was expecting, oh, this is going to be an interesting story, and we jump ahead and it's already resolved. Yeah, yeah, I remember that specifically, to Paul, oh, she's back on the Enterprise. I, oh, okay, I guess that's all been resolved, cool. Yeah, I had to, I had to turn the page and go, oh, I see, the, the date is has jumped ahead, so okay, we, we've moved forward. Therapy goes really fast on Vulcan, guys. <laughs> You're able to find yourself really quickly. Uh, but I guess being alone in a desert uh, will do that to you. So uh, you start hallucinating real quickly and you get to that subconscious level real fast. Or, you know, so. your your hour's almost up with the therapist, so they just jump right to the mind meld. You're fine now. That's right. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you know, I, I think um, the, the thing about this book is this. It's not bad. It's just not great. And that's the problem. Everybody wanted great for this series. And that's the problem is it just kind of ends up being mediocre. I don't really think that that's Michael Martin's fault. I, I think that's because he's legitimately trying to squeeze five years worth of events into one book. You know, whereas we saw the length and the size of the last book, which was in a trade paperback. It was, it was, you know, a massive story taking place. I think he had a lot planned out for winning to do, and he just doesn't get to do it. Uh, what he does get to do here, I think some of it really works. I love the idea of kind of the Hornblower series playing out on Star Trek because that's always been a touchstone for Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry told Patrick Stewart to read those books uh, as motivation and, and kind of headspace knowledge for him being Picard. So it, it's it's very much a part of Star Trek. So I, I like that. Um, you know, so uh, I'll, I'll save my thoughts on some things for later. But so, you know, Mayweather returns to the Enterprise. That's another big return to the Enterprise. And, you know, how did you feel like that played out? Because to me, that was also something where it was like, Oh, well, I guess I owe this guy an apology. And I was like, well, duh. You said big return. It's not a big return. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's just returned. No, it should have been a big return. It could but... have been, but he just decides that it's time to go back. And I was really interested to see what would happen once he came aboard that ship. What does he say to Archer? And instead, it's like what we were talking about earlier, right, Dan, about T'Pol. It's like all of exactly. a sudden. Exactly. Oh, He's there, and everybody's fine and happy. And Archer's almost like winking at him, like, glad to have you here, Travis. <laughs> yeah. Did they steal the Voyager reset button? The the big red reset button? Because that's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. Kirsten Beyer thought she hid that thing real good, but it got found, darn it. <laughs> but yeah, no. Uh, and the, the setup for the Mayweather thing, all we get are, you know, maybe two lines between him and Gannett Brooks. Like, oh, maybe I was unfair. Maybe I should uh, rethink my thing. And then, yeah, he's back on the Enterprise. He and Archer exchange kind of a knowing look. And that's all we get from that story. And again, I, I, I feel the frustration. I, I understand Michael Martin probably had a whole subplot planned for this and just couldn't do it. And this was kind of all that could be salvaged there. But it just, it really, ah. Uh, it it really falls flat and and i feel bad for saying that because i you know i understand the the limitations but oh man you know when when you read all that setup going back two novels to kobayashi maru all through uh beneath the raptor's wing and then that's how it gets resolved in this book 
yeah, and there's a lot of character moments that are are missed. the The setup is there for some really great character interactions and, and development of the relationships, and it doesn't happen. It feels that what Michael's doing here is just wrapping up everything that was set up in the previous books and says, okay, I've been given one book to wrap everything up. I can't start any new storylines. I got to show that a war has been going on for five years. So let's just, you know, check everything off the list and make sure that when the novel's done, the series of the past several books is over. Well, and, and that's really interesting too, because I, one of the things that for me I really wanted to see more of, and I guess this is probably one storyline where I feel like they do put a little bit more time into it, and that's T'Pau going to war and having to literally almost go to war with her own psyche with the shadow of Surak in her mind and having the conversation of, do I sanction some violence so our civilization isn't destroyed? And, of course, you know, she's not really talking to Surak's Katra or even Shadow, it, it's it's more like a manifestation of her own personality. It's it's as almost as like the shoulder angel and the shoulder devil. Do they have those in Vulcan? Are you know arguing with one another logically? Uh, and so, can you imagine that so- shoulder angel, shoulder devil argument for a Vulcan? How logical and boring that would be. <laughs> yeah, both coming from the side of logic, from their own point of view, kind of thing, and. Ultimately, just everyone agreeing <laughs> with pointed ears. Yeah, maybe they'd just be all devils, <laughs> but very logical devils. Very logical, and that's what Tapal's. I think trying that's to what be. McCoy calls Spock. So you logical devil. But Tapal, you know, I I kind of felt bad for her because you mean Tapal? I'm sorry, Tapal. Because originally T'Pol was supposed to be T'Pol when the Enterprise was created, but they made her T'Pol instead. But in this case, T'Pol was uh, trying, you know, this is a new time for Vulcan, and she's trying to lead them on the principles of peace and logic. And now she's in a situation where do they go to war and, and use violence? And that goes everything against the teachings of Surak. And you, you want to help Earth, but at the same time, this could have be devastating to Vulcan. But at the same time, I kept thinking for her, well, you know the Romulans are going to come after you next. So you've got to do something. And I think eventually over time, she's come to that realization that she needed to take the risk. And I would love to see a novel of what happens after this and the things that she has to deal with as the aftermath to this event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is what this probably to me is my favorite subplot of the book uh, because it, it kind of actually seems to be about something like it's not just giving us a quick overview of what's happening and moving on to the next thing. There's actually a few places where they where the author takes the time to kind of contemplate on this question of, you know, logic versus complete pacifism and, you know, what is the logical choice and that sort of thing. And I, I really appreciate that. I feel like he probably had to you know, fight to to take some stuff out to create the page space to be able to do that. So that, that part is definitely appreciated. And I think that it works because in the end, what she's taking a risk on, I think, is the Vulcan people and that they can be a people that go to war and still be able to follow Surak's teachings. 
that there's that's not a logical fallacy you know and i in the end i think pacifism just doesn't work and and tapau comes face to face with that idea that like well it's either annihilation as a people or we are going to have to allow ourselves to be part of some violence and can we be okay with that and can the vulcan people survive that and putting her faith and and it sounds weird to say for a vulcan but putting her faith and trust in the vulcan people to be able to handle that and obviously they do because they move forward and many of them continue to join starfleet and be a part of that organization that well we see them do violence and so uh, they they obviously are able to come to grips with it, but it was interesting to see that struggle for her and and her make the right decision. I think in the end to to be able to save Earth and what will become the Federation. And so um, it was interesting as well. I think because we kept having you know her talk to Archer or to Paul or those kind of things, and oh my gosh, do they keep having the same conversation? But that in the end, I feel like they they had had their effect too like so that none of those scenes had been you know worthless or anything Mm -hmm. so i i felt like this is the one part of the story where maybe there's the most cohesion and and resolution uh that really feels um i guess in some ways like okay i got that part of the story like i actually feel like i got more than half of that part of the story right absolutely yeah it's not quite as uh as as whiplash inducing as some of the other parts of the story. <laughs> right. Well, Bruce, I, I, so you put on here that this idea of like slow motion, explain what you mean about that. Well, what I mean is, Oh wait, that's slow. That's too slow in the book. Um, so trip is on this Romulan scout ship. And uh, if I remember correctly, they have basically engine problems. They can't move very fast. And so he puts them into a warp one slow motion time place where he slows down time within the ship. So time is moving faster outside of the ship. So by the time Topol reaches out to him through their mind space, they're having a time flow compatibility problem because time is moving slower for him than it is for her. And I found that interesting because I don't really remember this playing out much in Star Trek at all. And, and maybe it has in some other books or maybe there is a, an episode somewhere. But it also reminded me of things I read in theories about how star dates work that star dates differ because how time works with the ship in the early days of, of Starfleet. I don't think that's a theory that really is played out much anymore. But I just thought it was interesting how he can actually slow time down in a ship uh, based on the speed. Have you guys ever heard that before? Well, this is this I thought was actually a really cool part of the book. The, and the reason this is happening is because uh, they're not able to travel at warp speed. So war- I put on my nerd glasses here. When you go to warp speed, you create a warp bubble and, and travel through subspace. But basically their warp engines aren't working. So they're basically pushing their impulse engines as fast as they can. Full impulse is, if you read the technical manual, actually... Uh, 
which obviously you have. Oh, many, many times. <laughs> uh, and full impulse is actually only one quarter the speed of light. So there's not a lot of issues with time dilation there. Uh, but the closer you get to light speed, like as far as actually moving uh, through space, the more the like, and this is real theory, uh, there would be this time dilation effect. So because they're not using their warp engines, they're just traveling really, really, really fast at impulse. Uh, they're experiencing this this differential, which I, I thought the the first time they showed that through to Paul's perspective, I kind of forgot. And I was like, what is going on? And then when they showed it from Tripp's perspective, I was like, oh, right, of course, the close to the speed of light thing. I, th I thought that was really cool, personally. The nerd in me was just totally geeking out about that. It's a, it's a neat thing to have them actually play with the laws of physics like that, you know, the, from what we know of physics. And it, it felt very interstellar to me, you know, the way they played with time and how, you know, relativity works. Uh, I thought that that was really interesting that, you know, we're finally getting that because we're in a time period where, you know, ships only do go warp five. And, you know, uh, if you aren't at warp, yeah, and time is passing you time quote unquote is passing you by like crazy as uh, you're out there so it was a really interesting idea and i thought that was actually quite a bit of fun is it time travel though i mean if he's if their time is only passing maybe two three months and the rest of time is maybe a year ahead of them wouldn't they have just in from their perspective traveled through time well i mean in the sense that we're all traveling through time just at the same speed. <laughs> they went a little bit faster guys, for a while. Guys, guys, <laughs> time. We don't have the time to talk about time because we just, we don't have the time. <laughs> so. Uh, what time is it? But what we, I don't know. <laughs> There's no clock in here. My clock is slower than yours. I must be going in all speed. <laughs> That does lead me to ask you a question. So do you really feel like we get enough? And, and maybe that's not a fair question because of what we already talked about, but the Romulans, uh, what did you end up thinking of the Romulans that we actually get? And did you really kind of care about any of them? I I, I don't know if that's a fair way to ask, but I'm going to ask it. Anyway. I kind of, I actually wrote this down in my notes as I was reading. A lot of the Romulans we see are through the uh, trips, uh, part of the story where he's undercover uh, in Romulan space for much of the time. Now, to me, almost all of the Romulans or Vulcans, who knows who these people are at this point because there's so many double agents and all this stuff going on. A lot of them felt like Bond caricatures at times. Like, you know, you've got Vulcan Captain Sopek slash Romulan name I'm not going to try and pronounce who just keeps turning up even though you think he's dead and he's you know Valdor's got some dastardly plan that he's twirling his mustache about I, I I had a lot hard time taking a lot of these characters seriously because they just feel like caricatures uh most of the time you know I I, I don't get a sense of who they are Valdor a little bit I guess but other than that you know these guys I, I I'm not feeling it with them I I don't know a lot about them other than their muahaha plans half the time that's exactly how I felt too um but like like you were saying it, it almost is like a soap opera because you have you know Terex who is Romulan but he is convinced that he's a Vulcan 
who is a Romulan spy, but then he realizes that he remembers that he really is Romulan. And at the same time, there's this agent to, I'm going to try this. I'm actually going to try this name to lust, <laughs> to Lusta? agent to Lusta, who is a Romulan who, well, trip figures out that she is Vulcan, but she never really admits it that she's Vulcan. But remember she figured out that trip really isn't, a Romulan, he's a Vulcan, but not really Vulcan. He's really a human who person himself as a Vulcan who's trying to be a Romulan. I'm just a dude pretending to be another dude playing another dude. <laughs> and that's exactly what Tripp said, just like that, too. <laughs> but if he's a Vulcan and, and then he's a Romulan and then he's, oh my, I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. No, I'm right there with you guys because I feel the same way. A lot of the Romulan characters did feel... Like there was just too much going on and not enough, you know, space to explain really what's happening, and and a lot of the stories get truncated and uh, cut short. So, um, yeah, it's a little frustrating. So, I think you guys know I'm going to bring this up. The very end of the book. What do you think about that revelation? And does it work for you about Trip and Paul? And their family. <laughs> I I do love, I mean, you know, I, I've mentioned before on this podcast, I like the mushy, happy, sappy stuff. I I like that Tripp and T'Pol seem to get there happily ever after uh, in kind of pretty much the only way that is possible given what's been established both on the television show and in previous novels. Uh, it's it's too bad that Tripp Hester... <laughs> remain this you know secret of of ambassador to paul's but uh you know it's really the only way that it can play out unfortunately i guess uh i guess he's the gardener slash shrug <laughs> <laughs> like oh man the the vulcan soap opera he's, he's that... yeah he's the baby daddy <laughs> i mean so he is the gardener, but is he a Vulcan gardener or a Romulan gardener or a <laughs> human gardener or a human pretending to be a Vulcan gardener? I don't know. Wasn't there an Admiral Gardener? Too? <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> <laughs> there really was. Um, yeah, I like I like the happy ending too. I mean, especially you know when Enterprise, the TV series, ended with Trip dying. Now we know he's alive and he's happily. I don't know if he's married, but happily with T'Pol with a family. So it's it's all good. And of course, you know, the, the current line of Enterprise novels that are out are taking place before this event happens. So we know Trip's not going to die anytime soon. So actually, we I think we know that Trip doesn't die for quite a while. I think that was... Actually, he's at the laying of the keel yeah. of the original Enterprise that we think of with mm -hmm. Kirk. Uh, well, it would be Robert April at that point. But anyway, that's a whole other canon conversation. Uh, no, I I remember reading this, and you know, obviously, he had been brought back in the good that men do, and to have this book end with that, if anything else, that gave this book a whole star to <laughs> its rating, just because Trip and Paul finally got to be together after all of the. Vulcan poodoo that they had had to go through it was just the insanity of it and so you know I could not have been more happy with that part of the book and I thought it was really interesting 
the way in which, you know, I mean, Trip is kind of the hero of, I mean, he, he legitimately saves Earth. Without him, uh, Earth would, would and, and the Sharon battle would not have turned out the way it did. So it was, it was really nice that it was, it was very important for Trip to be where he was and doing what he was doing. And so then to, to allow that to wrap up in yeah, a nice bow. I'm totally okay with mm. it. So, I guess the last thing is what might have been. So, Michael Martin talked about some of the things he might have done in a second book. And uh, one of them was explaining more of Hoshi's relationship uh, with the Mako, uh, as well as um, getting a deeper dive into the Trip and Paul relationship that would have led... To the gates of Vulcan hell? Yeah, definitely some interesting stuff here. I really like this bit where he's talking about, uh, you know, as a people of pure reason, uh, they're the Vulcan faith. You know, they talk about venerating ancient gods and that kind of thing. This this line is really interesting. I would have liked to reveal that Vulcan's gods are at least as objectively real as Bajor's prophets. You know, that that's an interesting thought, like a book... Uh, exploring what Admiral Morrow calls in Star Trek Three Vulcan mysticism, I think would be a really, uh, really interesting take here and kind of a, a direction I wouldn't have expected this story to go. But, uh, you know, this more than anything's really made me want to see a, a third book of this. Like if I, you know, if that could have happened, that would have been great. And one of the uh, other ideas he mentions is working in a plot thread in which T'Pol suffers an injury that leaves her near death. And again, you know, that's introducing a plot thread. And I feel like that's what he isn't allowed to do in this novel. He's wrapping up plot threads from the previous novel. So all these ideas that he has, he really couldn't introduce because it would take him to have to do another novel to follow up and introduce new plot lines and stories and, and uh, new relationships, and he can't go that deep. This is this is the this is the book that he's wrapping things up. This is he's putting the bow on on the series, and unfortunately, it's over a five year period. It's almost like if you watch the TV series and read the novels, you get five full seasons, and then you get the last five seasons in one. I think uh, it would have been really interesting. Uh, the, the idea of diving in. And, and one of the things that I've noticed is that the religions of other races continues to kind of creep out in the Star Trek books. And I, I find that fascinating uh, that we don't want to talk about human religions, but, you know, we start talking about, you know, like Vulcan or Bajoran or Klingon or whatnot. Which I think we'll see in you know, Prey is some of the Klingon religions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Definitely going to be seeing that, I believe. And so I, I think, to me, that that's just so fascinating. And it's almost as if Star Trek and the authors kind of want to be able to talk about some of those things, but it's hard to do in the atheistic culture of, you know, specifically Starfleet for the most part uh, and uh, the Federation Whereas, you know, these other cultures, you know, that's, it's copacetic. It's cool to do that. So, uh, to me, I would have loved to have seen this. I think it would have been really cool. And I, I definitely, more than anything, just would have wanted this to be a trilogy instead of, you know, 
three, which I guess leads me to ask you guys what you might rate this one. Well, I I looked over my uh, old review of this book when it first came out, and uh, I, I was pretty harsh on it. I don't think as harsh as a lot of other people when it came out. This, like if you went on the Trek BBS, uh, man, ooh, some of the stuff that got said about this book was not good. And I, I didn't, I didn't come away from this book, like you said earlier, thinking that it was a bad book. It just wasn't a great book. And back at the time I rated it two stars out of five. Um, I think reading it this second time, and, and I, I hate to say this because it sounds bad, but with the lowered expectations of, you know, kind of knowing what to expect this time around, I was a little bit uh, softer on it. And, you know, I was able to appreciate a lot more some of those uh, parts that I might have kind of glossed over the first time around, like the Tapau wrestling with pacifism versus, uh, you know, doing something in this war story that I really appreciated here. So I think I'm going to go ahead and say that it it's earned at least enough of a percentage of another star to round it up to three stars. <laughs> and I mean, maybe that's damning with faint praise, but you know, I, I, I did enjoy it more this time. Again, it's not a great book. If I didn't have to reread it for this episode, I probably wouldn't have, but you know, I think it does rate probably three Dekir-class Vulcan cruisers coming to Earth's rescue. The thing about reviewing books is I seem, I tend to point out the things I don't like. It's sometimes easier to say that I don't like something than to go on about all the things that I do like, because maybe talking about what I do like sounds a bit boring. I don't know. But, I, I mean, I, I didn't there's things that I felt that could have been done better. I think I would have liked to see more characters, more of their relationships, more of what they're going through, even on the Romulan side. I think if we had more of that, uh, the book would have felt a little more richer. Um, but I did enjoy it. I did like to see what is happening in that time span of the Romulan War. I also went back and reread Federation the first 150 years to compare there's a lot of similarities in how the war is represented, but represented in the two different books, but there's also um, a lot of differences. So um, it, it's great to just get some insight in, as to what was going on at the time. So I would say it was a good book, and I would give it uh, three starships that Mayweather destroyed. <laughs> nice. I... Um... I'm with you guys in the sense that, you know, rereading this, I probably would not have gone back and reread this, but I'm glad that I did because I do feel like I came away with a little bit better appreciation with some of the things that it did. And uh, it's not perfect, but it is rated a dude playing a dude just pretending to be another dude, which, if you're doing your math correctly, is three dudes. <laughs> so, yeah, not bad. Well, I think uh, judging based on our ratings anyway, we've come to a pretty clear consensus about To Brave the Storm. You know, not a great book, but not quite as bad as uh, some parts of the internet would have you believe. Uh, you know, it's not quite bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, it is, you know, when a lot of people think about the Romulan War, maybe they're expecting something a little bit bigger than this book, but it is... A well-written story, uh, and again, a lot of the 
limitations that Michael Martin had to deal with in writing this book, I think go a long way to explaining the final product here. Uh, you know, not the best book, but you know, uh, it, it, it does its job, I guess is what I can say. I'm sorry. I thought it was funny when, uh, John Jackson Miller was talking about his prey books. There's three books that all take place within three months. And I thought, well, we just read one book that takes place across five years. It's, it doesn't seem like it's the right balance. It definitely was not the right balance. And I think in the end, I liked what Martin was trying to do. And I think I give him a lot more credit for that because I can see where he's trying to go. And I think it would have been fantastic if we had had three books. I think it would have been a really enjoyable series because I think the setup in the first book was really interesting. I think this uh, what we would happen in the second book would have really deepened some things and have been much more character driven. And I think it would have been a big blowout in the third one. And so it could just been great, but you know, whether it's good or bad or somewhere in between, we've got a great associate producers here on the show that let us do this. Uh, we've got a guy named Ken Tripp, Brandon Shea Matulla, another one named Bruce Gibson, and a fantastic guy named Norman Lau, and they all make this show possible through Patreon. We want to thank them so much for their support because without them and listeners just like them, we can't bring this network to you. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can be part of our team because we are a listener-supported network. Uh, Trek FM is huge. We have over 20 different shows, special feeds that we put out as well. We've got podcasts almost every day of the week for you talking about Trek and beyond with the 602 Club. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and just see how you can support the network and make sure that all that great content comes to you ad-free and just for your listening pleasure every day of the week. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Bruce, uh, when you're not trying to figure out whether you're the dude playing the dude who's pretending to be another dude in another dude's new shoes, where can we find you? Dude, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can hear me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. And uh, I'm usually in the Babel Conference talking Star Trek. And Dan, when you're not going slow on your impulse drive, where can people find you? Well, okay, no. <laughs> well, uh, Bruce, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube at Kurtrats Productions. And you can find me on Facebook also at Kurtrats Productions. And Matthew, when you're not debating the finer points of pacifism versus just doing something about those dang old Romulans, where can we find you? I'm sorry, I, w I was too involved in my uh, inner monologue about whether or not to be pacifistic towards you or to lash out at your mean statement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, at MattRushing02. Uh, of course, you can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. 
and I'm doing my, well, one of my favorite shows, which is the 602 Club. We're talking about all sorts of geeky things. We try to cover as many different topics as we can. Check us out. Uh, in fact, Bruce is on there pretty often. We've had so many people from around the network and, of course, off the network beyond to talk about some of your favorite geek things, whether it's Batman, Superman, Lord of the Rings. I mean, it, the list goes on and on and, and on. So check us out because we're talking about everything beyond Star Trek. And, of course, you could find me on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. We're talking about Star Wars, and it's so much fun. You can... Find that on iTunes under Aggressive Negotiations or just go to thenerdparty.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.